Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Plotlines. I'm your host, Connor, and today we're continuing our series on the Chronicles of Narnia with uh, this book today is Prince Caspian. And we have with us uh, Joseph Pierce, uh, who uh, wrote the book Further Up, Further In, as well as many books on many different literary figures, including Shakespeare, and uh, there's uh, including also many just massive books on all the different Catholic uh, literary figures, such as Tolkien in in multiple books. I think one of them's called uh, The Literary Converts, as well as, uh, uh, it's right next to me. (laughs) Hold on. Literary Giants. That's what it is. Literary converts and literary giants. But here we're talking about C.S. Lewis, who is not a Catholic, but you also wrote a book on C.S. Lewis and the Catholic Church. Is that right? Yes, I've written two books on uh, C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis and the Catholic Church, which is sort of biography, focusing on his relationship with Catholicism from his childhood right through to his death. Uh, and then the other book of, on C.S. Lewis is the one that's more directly connected to our discussion, and that's further up and further in understanding Narnia. So I wrote a book on the Chronicles of Narnia. So um, they're my two books on Lewis. I've written three books on on Tolkien. So uh, yeah, uh, I love I love the Inklings. I love Tolkien and Lewis. And you can find his work also on his website, which is jp jpierce.co, right? Yeah, jpierce.co, J-P-E-A-R-C-E dot C-O. If want, people want to keep up what I'm up to, I post new things on there every week, three new podcasts in the uh, in the Inner Sanctum part of the website. Awesome. So I think this uh, Prince Caspian book might be one of the more confusing uh, Narnia books for Americans because we don't really have a good understanding of English history. Well, yes, that's that's a good point, uh, and it's a good question. Um, obviously, you know, we understand reality uh, better if we understand uh, the multifaceted aspects of it. So, what's true of reality is also true of literature. Uh, the reality presented to us in literature, uh, and and the more understanding we have of intertextual dimensions, in other words, the extent to which a work of literature points to things beyond the text, um, then that can be other texts. Um, or it can be uh, contexts such as history. And certainly in, in um, uh, Prince Caspian, there's a lot of English history going on in the background. So, But one good thing, I think, one of, part of the adventure of, of good literature, of great literature, is it leads us into other worlds, not just the other world of the work of fiction, but other worlds in terms of the past, both of our own country and of other people's countries. It broadens our perspective. Yeah. So, the, I mean, the premise of this book is that we have Narnia, which has been uh, is gone through uh, hundreds of years since uh, the Pevensey children ruled. And the Pevenseys have basically only experienced a year on in our world. And the Telmarines have come in to Narnia and have basically overthrown the... Uh, the, the old way, the the old Narnia, and they have they sort of um, it was basically the Norman Conquest uh, in in some ways, and the Pevensies are called back into Narnia to answer the the call from the old Narnians, and Prince Caspian has been raised to believe that he is not the heir to the throne, or actually actually no, he's he should be the king, but he uh, he is be- he believes that his uncle is the rightful king, and that seems a little bit uh, Richard the Third. Yeah, so there's lots, lots, lots going on there. You're completely correct to make the allusion to the Norman Conquest. It has been centuries, although it only seems a year in in our time. When the Pevensey children are, are called back to Narnia, um, they, they they discover that it's actually centuries later. Um, and you know, again, there's some good, deep metaphysics going on here. Like when you know, when we die, for instance, you know, how long do we have to hang around in the grave before the last day and we're raised up? 
you know, it's really an academic question because we're relieving the world of physics to the world of metaphysics, right? We're relieving the temporal uh, into the eternal. So the point is that um, when we when we cross the threshold from the, the temporal life to the eternal life, uh, it will be instantaneous. Uh, it doesn't matter whether we lived uh, uh, 10,000 years ago or 10,000 years in the future or last week. Um, basically, we will enter the presence of God at his will. So same kind of thing here as what, what Lewis is getting at is that you know, nine is a different world. And as it's a different world, it's on a different, should we say, temporal plane altogether. Uh, and we can spend no time here. Uh, and, you know, a thousand years might have passed in, in nine. It's just on a different uh, level of uh, of being. So when they go back hundreds of years, we are told that, obviously, you said Telmarines had invaded. And the first Telmarine ruler was King Caspian I, who's also known as Caspian the Conqueror. And again, if once you understand history, you see immediately the direct connection with William the First, uh, the, the, the Norman Conqueror, who's known as William the Conqueror. So clearly, Lewis is intending us to see the connection, to see the parallel between the two ages. So that means, if you want to take that parallel literally as well as literarily, that something like 900 years have passed since uh, the, the time when, when King Peter and his siblings ruled uh, in, uh, in Narnia um, and, and the time in which they are recalled to Narnia and in, in the reign of, of, uh, of, 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 of the usurping wicked King Miraz, uh, who's usurping the throne from his nephew, the true king, Caspian. Yeah, the, the way the book is structured is very interesting because it brings you, it starts with the kids, uh, with the Pevensies, and then switches to Prince Caspian, and then switches back to the kids. Well, do, do you think that was, or do you think that was a smart way of doing it? Because it, it definitely, when I first read it, it definitely, uh, like sort of, just, uh, made it difficult to continue reading. Well, I, I think it's there's a complexity there, and of course, especially if we read the Chronicles of Narnia uh, for the first time when we're a child or have them read to us as a child, then complexity can be perplexity, right? That, that which is complex can be perplexing. So, um, but I, I, I think the parallel stories um, that then converge as, as the Pevensey children actually uh, arrive at Aslan's Howe and join the Crusaders in their, uh, in their uprising against the, the wicked King Chimeras, and then the stories come together. Uh, I, I think literarily it's, 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 it's beautiful, um, uh, and, uh, but I do understand that, you know, that, that if, we, if we're used to a simple narrative, and children certainly are, you know, that you just follow usually just one character, <laughs> and not multiple characters, one character and their story from, uh, you know, the once upon a time to the, the living happy ever after. Then when you when you get when you get these different uh, literary techniques, parallel stories that converge. Um, but that's part of growing up. Right. That's part of learning to mature in our literary understanding of things. So um, that, that's exactly what the Chronicles of Narnia do when we, by the time we get the last battle it's 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 a very dark work and and the, and the final pages are very very deep in terms of theology you know but presumably and hopefully a, a child that's managed to get through the first six will be up to this new challenge which nonetheless will be a challenge yeah i'm i'm afraid that most uh many adults uh would not wouldn't be patient enough uh in their re, uh, literary capacity uh, in some ways, um, because our, we are, so we are, we have become childish in that way. Yeah. I think, well, I think that GK Chesterton said way back in the, uh, early 1920s that the coming peril was not Bolshevism, was not communism. The coming peril was standardization by a low standard. And I think this dumbing down a culture to a lowest common denominator of attention deficit disorder uh, has been accelerated by technology. So it certainly is true that we live in an age of, of illiteracy uh, that's largely caused by the, the fact that people are out of the habit of reading anything but um, 
um, uh, snippets on on social media, um, uh, and and they're agitated by by distraction uh, all the time. So the, again, that's another reason. By the way, if you actually want spiritual and psychological health, uh, which is connected to physical health, they can't be separated. You need to find time. You need that disconnect from 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 technology and find time to read books. Find time to read poetry because poetry forces you to slow down. Watch a sunset. In other words, get get in touch with re, with reality by disconnecting from virtual reality, and you'll be a happier person. And you will find actually that you can look, you can read much better once you give yourself the time to do so. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's great advice. I really suggest everyone do that. As as a as a zoomer, it, it's definitely something I have. To overcome like it's it's something that i wasn't trained to do when i was a kid that i have to overcome as an adult and you know it just goes to show you like when you're raising your children it's important to uh, provide them that skill basically yes it's important first of all to make sure your children not addicted to 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 to, to gadgets and i sometimes say that gadgets should be called gadgets because we spend more time with our gadgets than we do with our God. Um, so I, we certainly an important part of parenting is to limit the amount of time that our children have with technology and to maximize the amount of time that they have with good uh, um, nurturing and nourishing activities, such as reading good books. Mm -hmm. So we ta we've talked about sort of uh, the fact that there's an old Narnia uh, but there, and there's also in the, the real world that we talk. There's talk a lot about old England. What are the similarities between old Narnia and old England? Yeah, again, another parallel is connected once again to the Norman Conquest, which is clearly a quite a, a key motif in in in, in this book. Um, the for Tolkien and Lewis, for both of them, and we need to remember it, that they were good friends. Um, they. They're both Oxford professors at the same time in the 1920s, right through to uh, to to their retirement in the 60s. Um, uh, and uh, they, they were they were both lovers of Old English. Um, the Old English is the language which precedes the Norman Conquest, sometimes called Anglo-Saxon. Uh, and, and the period of Anglo-Saxondom, the period of Anglo-Saxon England, uh, which from the point of view of its being Christian, certainly dates from the arrival of uh, it gets complicated, but from the arrival of St. Augustine of Canterbury, whose feast day we celebrated a couple of days ago, uh, the end of the 500s, the end of the 6th century, to towards the end of the, the 11th. So, so for almost five years, there's this golden age of Christendom called Anglo-Saxondom. And, you know, the great works uh, from that period, such as Beowulf, the, the Anglo-Saxon epic, which was hugely influential on Tolkien and Lewis. Tolkien even translated it. Um, uh, some great Anglo-Saxon poetry, we have St. Bede the Venerable with his Ecclesiastical History of the English People. From that time, uh, we have great English Anglo-Saxon missionaries um, go going out, some, such as St. Boniface and converting the Germanic tribes uh, of Europe. So this was a golden age. So I think that you know what's being alluded to uh, in Prince Caspian is that the old Narnia uh, it was, a, was a healthier place, that somehow this this old world of the Shire. I mean, again, we do need to realize that, 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 that Tolkien's depiction of the Shire is also rooted in Anglo-Saxondom. That this old world of the Shire was, had, had basically been compromised and, and uh, well, up to a point destroyed by this conquest. So there's now only a remnant, a remnant of the old Narnians living you know, in, in the hinterlands, on the edges of things, away from the cities, uh, and reminding us, in fact, in their, in their lifestyle of perhaps Robin Hood. And again, you know, Robin Hood is a character who, who evokes the old Anglo-Saxon England, uh, the, the Merry England. Um, so we have this uh, elusive parallel with English history going on in Prince Caspian. Okay, gotcha. Now... I knew I knew Tolkien had a great love of Anglo-Saxon, and I I wasn't really sure I didn't really know that C.S. Lewis did as well, but like Hillel Belloc, he was much more of a, a Norman uh, admirer. So uh, how how do you ba or I don't know what's the right balance I guess. 
Well, that's a, that's that's a great question. Again, there's a wonderful story um, that, uh, that was told in the memoirs of Father Martin Darcy, who was a Jesuit uh, from the time between the two world wars, a very well known figure at the time, uh, who was known, to, uh, who knew both Belloc and Tolkien, and 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 in his memoir and his his biography. Father Darcy talks about attending a, um, a, a lecture in Oxford given by Hilaire Belloc, uh, in which Belloc basically says that the Norman Conquest was a good thing for England because it brought England into the fullness of, of, uh, of European Christendom. And of course, Belloc is very much uh, a Francophile. I mean, he's half French, born in France, father was French. Um, and so he loves France. France is the oldest order of the church, and he sees things from a French perspective. But as Father Darcy is watching this lecture and listening to this lecture, that that, that um, Tolkien is in the audience just in front of him, and and Father Darcy is watching Tolkien getting more and more irritated and irate at uh, at uh, Belloc's uh, line of reasoning. Um, so yes, you're completely correct. There are two ways of of perceiving uh, the Norman Conquest and of uh, the Anglo-Saxon England which preceded it. Uh, all I would say is that my um, my sympathies are very, very strongly with Tolkien. I love Belloc. I mean, I've written a biography of Belloc as well, and I love, you know, he's one of my favorite writers. Uh, I see him as a friend, in fact. But uh, on this, I disagree with my friend. Um, that Because that, uh, there, there was, the Anglo-Saxon England was already an integral part of Christendom. You could even ask, and there was a book once called How the Irish Saved Civilization, about you know the likes of St. Patrick and, 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 and the Irish missionaries that went out. But you could write a book, uh, someone could write a book, perhaps someone should write a book called How the English Saved Civilization. And that would be, again, about the, about the, the, the golden age of, of Christendom, which was Anglo-Saxon England, which included the sending out of missionaries such as St. Boniface. It included um, Alcuin, this, this great um, uh, teacher of, of, of Charlemagne, of the Holy Roman Empire, who basically brought, should we say, uh, the learned world of, of uh, philosophical and theological Catholicism to, to the whole of Europe, but he was he was he was um, uh, the, uh, from York in Northern England. So the, the, the you know Parche Belloc, all peace to Belloc. That Anglo-Saxon England did not need the Norman Conquest to become a fully fledged Catholic nation. Anglo-Saxon England was already a fully fledged Catholic nation. Mm. Did Father Darcy also bring Waugh into the church? Yes, I believe he did at. Um, um, uh, at Father Darcy's church, which is a church of the Immaculate Conception, the Jesuit church in Mayfair in, in London. I believe that is that's exactly the war was received in the church there. Yes. And, and perhaps the poet Edith Sitwell, if my memory serves me correctly, also. OK, yeah. Yeah. I thought I recognized the name, but I, I uh, you know, I wasn't totally sure. Um, yeah, if we, those, those of your viewers that are, know, know these things, that the character of um, Father Mowbray, in uh, Evening Wars novel, Bright Heavy Visited, is modelled on Father Martin Darcy. Yeah. The, so back to sort of Caspian, uh, he he's being educated by uh, his tutor. Well, for, first he's you know has the, his nanny, and his nanny is uh, shuffled away because she's telling him stories of the old Narnia, and then uh, the tutor also can't is explicitly told not to teach uh him basically the old narnian history it it reminds me a lot about a lot of lot sorry reminds me of wig history is that yes. what uh lewis is uh referring to well uh you know we have to be careful with lewis of course because lewis is a northern ireland protestant um mm -hmm. you know that uh, that hilaire belloc of course wrote a multi-volume history of england which he he stated explicitly was to counter the tom Fall protestant history the Whig history basically is is history written by the victors to justify their own misdemeanors <laughs> um, so, so it's outrageous uh you know it, it airbrushes out all the all the wicked things that the uh that the Whigs did um uh and um and rewrites English history in accordance with their with, with their victor's philosophy. So certainly what, what Lewis is saying there is that, I mean, we might say more about the fact that um, uh, legends, 
that, that, that we mustn't trust legends. I mean, this would be much more in line with, with Lewis. So I agree with you, by the way, about the with history. It's absolutely applicable. And it may well have been in Lewis's mind. But I think that we, we need to have an element of uh, uh, caution there. But what's certainly true uh, is that he believed that, 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 that stories that were legends are not uh, lies, Right, that 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 the myths convey truths, and of course, what we find out in Prince Caspian that all of these legends that that, that uh, the Prince Caspian and the people of Narnia have been told uh, to uh, to distrust um, are actually true. So, uh, and this would be the case, of course, again, it's like the Whigs because the the tel Telmarines might have to justify the fact that they invaded someone else's country, that they took over, um, uh, and, and that they imposed their ultimately usurping will upon the indigenous people. So, you know, it, that, 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 could, that could apply to the Norman conquest. It certainly could apply to the Tudor tyranny, where the, the faith of the English people was ripped away from them against their will by, by Henry VIII. It could certainly apply to the, the so-called Glorious Revolution when the true King of England was overthrown um, by, um, uh, by, by basically the, the, the rich and the wealthy in, in, in 1688. Um, so, yeah, so there's absolutely there are elements of this that are applicable to reality. I mean, it's Tolkien and Lewis say that a, a story has applicability. There are things within the story that, that can be applied to things beyond the story and specifically and especially to things in our own world. Yeah. So the, so the Caspian learns that everything that the sort of old Narnians are real. He also learns that his, uh, his uncle has a son and now he uh, needs to be uh, uh, done away with. So he is uh, escorted out by the, uh, of the castle by his tutor, and he basically runs into the Narnians, the old Narnians, and becomes the leader of the old Narnians. It, uh, in your book, further up and further in, it uh, makes a lot of references to the Jacobite kings, and the it it reminds me a little bit of how also the Stuarts were scottish and they became kings of england and scotland and then they sort of all and then they become the leaders of this this uh, jacobitism so uh is that something being uh referenced as well yeah there's a recurring motif in both tolkien and lewis of the return of the king um obviously you know, that's a the titles of one of the past Lord of the Rings is, is the return of the king. But we see it in the line in which in the wardrobe, right? That, that, that everyone's awaiting the return of Aslan. You know, so, so that this curse of the winter that's never Christmas that's been imposed upon the people of Narnia by the White Witch may pass when, when Aslan returns, right? Aslan's on the move, the return of the king. So this motif's already established um, in the line in which in the wardrobe. Um, and so we see it again. And the return of the king within, Engl within an English context, it normally evokes both the Jacobite, so you're correct, and just to, for those of your viewers that don't know much about English and Scottish history, um, um, that basically the, the King James II was the true king of England. Nobody at all is disputing that. So he becomes king of England. But James II is a Catholic. And the Catholic, you know, the, the, the Catholic monarchy had been overthrown 150 years earlier, um, effectively, when Henry VIII sets up a state religion. Uh, and by this time, of course, a lot of people have become very rich uh, because of the uh, parceling out of the church land, the monasteries and what have you been handed out to the new aristocracy. And there's also a new mercantile class, a, a class of, of, of very wealthy merchants. Uh, and these people do not want a return to, to, to Catholicism. So they pay, and this is one of the great acts of treachery in history, which, again, the Whigs call a glorious revolution. So they admit it's a revolution, right? They're not saying true king, <laughs> we, we put a true king on the throne. No, we removed the true king. We had a revolution, but it was a glorious revolution. Well, what was glorious about it? These super wealthy people and politicians paid for an army of foreign mercenaries to invade their own country. Now, I can't think of anything which is more treacherous to your own country than to pay a foreign army to invade it. That's basically what happened. And so King James II, the true king, is forced into exile. 
he he has a campaign in Ireland to try to uh, uh, come back to the throne, and that fails. And then uh, his ancestors uh, lead to Jacobite uprisings, and the Latin Jacobus means James, so a Jacobite is a follower of James. That's where the names come from. So the, the, there's this Jacobite longing uh, for the return of the true king, the king who is in exile over the water, awaiting his return. But the other dimension, which is very important, and perhaps even more important that for, for Lewis is the Arthurian dimension, King Arthur, because King Arthur is the once and future king. So he was king once, but when things get really bad, uh, he will return uh, and deliver England from her enemies. So, so again, Arthur is the once and future king. Uh, the Jacobite king is a king in exile. We await the return of the king. And of course, for a Christian, and of course, we met, it's perilous to forget that C.S. Lewis is a Christian. We are all of us always awaiting the return of the king himself, Christ the king. It seems that uh, sort of in some ways the uh, Caspian represents kind of the Jacobite kings. And then the uh, Pevensies in some ways represent Arthur. Because they're they're coming from the past in, in the, from the Narnian perspective. And Caspian is not one of them in sort of the uh, in in some sense, but also uh, their leader who has been exiled. Yeah, completely correct. The, the, the Pevensies, because they've they, they've they've returned after centuries, let's say let's say nine hundred years away. Uh, Arthur would be even longer. Um, but either way, you're, you're completely correct that, that that there is an Arthurian dimension. To the return of the Pevensey children, the old kings and queens who who, who passed away, who have you know, have, well they so they left, right? <laughs> Imagine the sorts of legends that were rising nine years. So these, these you know the two kings and two queens that sort of just rule for a long while and then sort of disappear. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, so you know, and then they return centuries later. So of course, there's an Arthurian dimension to it, um, which which uh, which we mustn't forget. Now, Prince Caspian as the, the Jacobite king, uh, yes, but it gets very complex and complicated there because, of course, you know, the Prince Caspian is uh, the heir of King Caspian I. Uh, so he's, he's, he's the heir of the invading Telmarines. Um, that's why he's, he's human and not, not a talking beast mm -hmm. um not a, not a true narnian an old narnian shall we say he's a new narnian um so uh so we we, we, we can't oh we can't overforce it but sure. certainly in the sense that you know that the king in power um miraz is a usurper as was William uh the William the third uh the person who replaced James the second as a usurper so the fact that we have a usurper on the throne and the true king is trying to um to to restore the crown that's rightfully his uh yes absolutely in that sense king caspian prince caspian later king caspian uh is uh, a jacobite yeah i don't mean to say that it's like it's like can be imprinted on like i don't mean to say that it's 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 like almost like exactly what happened uh, but I, you know, it does it. It it just makes me think about that. It makes me harken back to that. It seems, you know, we're talking about Lewis. He's often longing, it seems, uh, for something in his Narnia books. He, you know, because you know, he's often bad mouthing the education of the current time. He's, you know, he 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 is using this sort of uh arthurian uh references as well as some some jacobite in in maybe accidental and not purposeful but because he never became a catholic it seems like does he know what he's longing for in some ways did lewis know well yeah again it, it's a it, it that's another great question you ask lots of good questions uh, Lewis, um, uh, again, I wrote, a, I wrote a book called C.S. Lewis in the Catholic Church, which is about 65,000 words, so it's always a bit of a challenge to try to answer a question about Lewis's religious position in a, in a nutshell, in a, in a soundbite. But um, uh, what we need to understand is that Lewis, um, the, the, the Jacobite issue he may have been conflicted on, because uh, um, certainly the people of North, the Protestants in Northern Ireland um, there's a very powerful uh, secret society in Northern Ireland uh, called the Orange Order. 
named after William of Orange, the usurping King William III, uh, who replaced the true King James II. Um, and there's no doubt at all that Lewis and his brother Warney were in some sense impacted by that Orangeism. So I do think there'll be an element of ambivalence. But nonetheless, Lewis was a, was a good scholar and a learned man and was sufficiently detached to, to imbibe, uh, as I said, he loved the finishes of the novels of Sir Walter Scott, uh, some of which are very Jacobite. So uh, he, he could certainly use uh, the, the, the idea of the Jacobite as, as something which it can romant romantically move his story forward with the idea of the return of the king, but not, not just in the Arthurian sense, but in the Jacobite sense. So, you know, he's a very wi widely read, learned, and uh, in a healthy sense, detached. In other words, he can um, he can look at ideas and take them in a detached fashion and apply them to his own work. And you are completely correct that that Lewis and Tolkien don't write formal allegories. You know, it, we, we're not meant to say that that. Um, uh, in fact, it would be wrong to say that Prince Caspian is uh, a Jacobite. No, he's not a Jacobite, but he reminds us of the Jacobites and is meant to. There's an applicability rather than a direct, hard, formal, allegorical connection. Yeah. It's just interesting because uh, Lewis is really... He, I mean, he's a, crit he's a critic of the modern world. So it, it, it's just very interesting to see how he critiques the modern world in his fiction. Yes. I mean, I, I, what, that's the, what, one of the things that's applicable about it. So it's set in another world, in another time, in a sort of quasi-medieval culture uh, that's very low-tech or no-tech. Um, and yet, of course, what he's saying, what he's doing in terms of theology, philosophy, uh, political uh, applicability uh, is very relevant and pertinent to the real world, real world in which he lived. Right. Um, so uh, and, and indeed to the world in which we live uh, a century after him um, or 75 years after him or what have you. So um, uh, that's the genius of a storyteller, because uh, the, the stories uh, reflect reality. They show us the world in which we live. And, and as, and as um, G.K. Chesterton says in Orthodoxy, in the chapter uh, on the ethics of Elfland, he says that fairy stories don't just show us uh, how, how things are, they show us how things ought to be. He says that, that it's not earth that judges heaven, it's heaven that judges the earth. And therefore, it's not earth that judges fairyland, it's fairyland that judges the earth. So in other words, when we enter Narnia, we, we, we actually allow to enter in a position of judgment upon our own world, uh, because it's showing us the way things should be in our world, the way things are in our world, and the way things shouldn't be in our world. It's a magic mirror that shows us not just the physical realities, but the metaphysical realities. Yeah. Now, Aslan and Caspian don't, don't interact that much, obviously, in the very beginning of the story. And it's interesting because Caspian in the beginning really has the relationship we have uh with god we don't uh we're not physically present w with our lord you know we're not seeing him walk about uh but the pevensies on the other hand have done so with aslan they have walked about uh with aslan so it's in most interesting that they are the most sort of impatient and struggling as they make their way through narnia they are they do not um, – they are in a lot of ways sort of Th Thomas, doubting Thomas in the story. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm very pleased you brought that up because I think it's one of the most important elements of the story. It's, 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 it's rooted uh, – well, it's, it's, it's a meditation, a very deep meditation on the nature of faith. Uh, and basically they can't see him. That's the whole point. right? They have been able to see him in the past, but now they can't. Now, he appears, first of all, to Lucy. There's a hierarchy of perception here, right? Uh, Lucy, of course, as we discussed in the earlier episodes, uh, Lucy, the, her name um, comes from the Latin lux, which means light. St. Lucy is the patron saint of the blind. Lucy is the seer, right? She's the one who sees um, most and first, uh, not only in the, in the Lion, Witch and Wardrobe, but in um, Prince Caspian. She's the one who can first see Aslan, but then the others can't. So for the others, 
they have to either think that Lucy is lying. Um, and, you know, we know that Lucy is not a liar. So there's no real excuse for that perspective. But nonetheless, they can't see what she's seeing. They have to take what she's seeing on faith. And it's very interesting there. The first person to 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 accept uh, what she what she's saying on faith is Edmund. And Edmund, of course, is um, uh, the um, uh, the prodigal son figure from the Lion, which in the wardrobe, right? He's the sinner, the repentant sinner. Um, and so for him, you know, he knows that he has failed Lucy in the past by refusing to believe her. And if you like, as an act of penance, says, look, I, I, I'm not going to doubt her again. I doubted her once before and that didn't end well. I'm going to believe her, even though I can't see. And then once he makes the act of faith, he can see. In other words, once he makes his act of faith in Aslan, Aslan then becomes visible. And then, and then Peter uh, can, can, can see uh, eventually. Uh, and then finally, Susan, who's very, again, very repentant and, and apologetic for her, for her lack of faith. And that's actually a premonition as we... Uh, of 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 what we what we learn about in the last battle, but perhaps we won't we won't speak about that now. Um, so to me, it's a very profound meditation upon upon the nature of faith. You know, do are we able to believe things that physically we can't see? Uh, and uh, I, to me, it's one of the one of the deepest spiritual elements of uh, not just Prince Caspian, but all of the Chronicles of Narnia. That particular that particular. Um, part of the story where they are learning to see with eyes of faith yeah one of the uh, fruits of the holy spirit is something that i did not really know very well until very recently which is longanimity uh and i i think it is in uh it is the importance of it is placed at the center of the story our, our desire for uh, uh, Christ to sort of come in and fix everything when we want, uh, like when we want it to happen. And uh, the old Narnians have to be patient and also have to uh, experience that. And some are and some aren't. You have Nicobrick, who is the least patient. I mean, he... He basically turns to the demonic, uh, the occult, in response to that. And that is one of the difficulties in society is so many people have decided I'm tired of whatever is their problem in this world. Uh, they're tired of waiting. They're tired of, you know, they, they don't have these virtues and they uh, they want to overturn things overturned the world and so so could you talk a little bit about that yeah well, i think i, I think your your your, your reference longanimity is is very good uh the uh perseverance uh in faith this is the real test that's the whole point is that god is not a magician um you know he doesn't uh offer instantaneous results at our beck and call he's not our servant or slave we are his servants, not his slaves, but we are his servants. Are we meant to be? We are free to refuse to be his servants, which is why we're not slaves. Um, but um, the, 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 the difference here, the, the important thing about this uh, is that, again, in Tolkien and Lewis, the temptation to magic or the occult, the, the, the temptation that Nickerbrook falls, falls into in, in Prince Caspian is, no, there are if we can take some supernatural power or some natural power such as technology and deliver ourselves into what we want now, rather than having to, to have longanimity, rather than having to have endurance and patience, perseverance, um, then that's a temptation. And, and, and again, it's um, uh, the temptation to pluck the apple. Right. Is that uh, the, you know, choose the knowledge of good and evil. And they already had knowledge of the good. So, so choosing choosing to pluck the apple was choosing the knowledge of evil, right? Choosing to know evil, uh, and so sometimes in order to get what we want, uh, again the, the buzz phrase from time of Nietzsche onwards, and it's certainly the buzz phrase in our pride-oriented culture, uh, is self-empowerment. 
right? Where if it's all about self-empowerment, then you find some way to empower the self and, and whatever, whatever is the most easy and self-gratifying way of doing that. So use technology. So should we say material magic or use the demonic supernatural magic, both of which, um, uh, well, that technology is, itself is neutral, but, uh, but using it pridefully as using anything pridefully is sinful. Gotcha. Yeah. It, uh, the, one of the interesting things also about the story is that as they, as the Pevensey spend more time in Narnia, they are sort of brought into their own back to when they back to their abilities, back to their skills, back to their knowledge of their time when they were in Narnia so much that, uh, by the, by sort of the time when Peter makes it to Caspian and, they're prepared to duel or uh, with uh miraz he is talking like a uh an ancient king so yeah and again, again there's another, another very important point you make because you know what can happen to us and this is particularly it's important for all of us because we're, we're all called to remain childlike but it's especially important for children that are growing up um and needing to grow into maturity maturity being ultimately the growing virtue um that we can enter uh another world than the world in which we find ourselves as the pevensey children do in entering narnia and in entering that world we can be ennobled uh, we can learn to uh um uh, live um vicariously because we can't do it physically in our own circumstance especially if we're a, a 10 year old living at home with our parents right um but we can learn to live vicariously the life of courage of fortitude of faith of perseverance we get so that's what really happens um what happens within the story but in entering narnia the pevensey children are no longer merely you know children living in 1940s england they are called to something greater. And I think that's one of the glories of great literature, and especially the literature uh, uh, of, of, of Narnia and Middle Earth, that it calls us to greatness, right? We're not meant to be spectators. We, e we enter the story ourselves. We walk the journey with Bilbo or Frodo. We take the, uh, the journey with the Pevensey children from Care Paravel to Aslan's Howe. Uh, we are meant to be there and we are meant to, if you like, be um, vicariously sharing in the nobility, the ennoblement that's being offered to us in the reading of the story. You know, when we, when we open uh, the, the pages of, a, of a, a, one of the Chronicles of Narnia, it is like, like walking through a, a wardrobe. We are literally crossing the threshold into another world where we are called to grow up. Yeah. And sort of one of the one of the last things that I want to discuss is sort of this. Uh, there's a weird there's a weirder part that happens when Aslan kind of when he triumphs, when he when he uh, when he and uh, Susan and Lucy uh, sort of march in this parade. And he, you know, he goes and uh, bring brings the faithful out of hiding and stuff like that. Now, there's a character, Bacchus. Now. My understanding is that that's um oh what is it uh the isn't that the god of wine from yes. uh, Greek mythology? Can you explain yes. why Lewis brings uh Bacchus into the story and you know what are we supposed to make of that? Yeah, that's that's yeah. You 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 certainly do ask some great questions, Connor. It's a joy to 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 converse with you because that uh, you know an interview is only as good as the questions one's asked. Um. So uh, what we have to understand about C.S. Lewis is his understanding of, 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 of the, the true paganism. And by true paganism, we, we mean that, 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 that paganism which existed before the time of Christ. Um, now, you know, the paganism before the time of Christ is it's not culpable for being pagan, right? Um, because it, it has not had the fullness of Christian truth revealed to it. The revelation has not happened. So they're, they're groping in the dark. So for instance, in C.S. Lewis's book, um, The Pilgrim's Regress, we meet a character called Father History. And Father History says basically that you know, right back in the eons of time, right back in the beginning of time, uh, the landlord, which is the name for God in that story, um, uh, the landlord um, 
there was a, a sundering of the, the of the landlord's people from the landlord. In other words, people turned their back on God. Only um, only the landlord's own people, the Jews, um, uh, remembered how to read. Um, but God, the landlord, did not desert the vast bulk of people, the Gentiles, who had forgotten how to read. And because they'd forgotten how to read, they did not know the law, they did not know true theology, they did not have the covenant, he sent them pictures. In other words, that, 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 that God spoke to his people that had strayed away from him with pictures. And this is, uh, this is very much Tolkien's and Lewis's philosophy of myth, right? the love of wisdom could be found, found through story. <clears throat> so in the pagan culture, in, in the Iliad, in the Odyssey, in the Aeneid, uh, in the tragedies of Sophocles, we see God revealing himself through wisdom in the telling of stories. So Lewis says that, um, that, that there's a big difference between the old pagans, Bacchus, that's what's being in this story, Bacchus is this old, healthy paganism which is being raised by Aslan and therefore baptised, all right? So what does what do, what do Christians, Christians do? Well, um, the greatest work of Christian literature is probably the Divine Comedy. The Divine Comedy's inspiration comes from, from um, Virgil, the Aeneid, which is a work of pagan literature. Um, uh, and uh, Virgil takes his inspiration from Homer, which is Greek pagan literature. So we have this continuum. And as regards philosophy, you know, that St. Augustine baptizes Plato. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas baptizes uh, Aristotle. So what happens is that Christendom baptizes all that's good in true paganism. So what Lewis says is that the old pagans were like the bride awaiting the coming of the bridegroom. He said the new pagans, the neo-pagans of our own day are like divorcees that have walked away from the marriage. So the difference between the bride, the, the, the bride awaiting the coming of the bridegroom, the old pagan culture awaiting the coming of Christ, Bacchus, right? The spirit of joy, the, 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 the joie de vivre, the rambunctiousness, you know, that, that, that should be part of the Christian life. That's God, God of wine. Uh, it needs to be baptized and lifted up. And that's exactly what happens at the end of Prince Caspian. Okay, yeah, that's that's great to know. I though I made a mistake. That wasn't the last thing I wanted to ask. Uh, the the last last thing I want to ask is I've I've heard it said that the book is about the corruption of the church and the purification of it. Uh, what what do you think of that premise? Uh, at best, it's an oversimplification uh, and a reductionism. Uh, at worst, it's just wrong. Uh, I, I think I think what we what we've done here is discuss the multifaceted aspects of it. It's certainly um, uh, it's certainly a, an allusion to a, a, a culture that's become agnostic, that's forgotten its past. Uh, this, these these are the new Narnians, okay, are the Telmarine rule. Um, that they, they, they've forgotten their past, therefore they've forgotten who they are. And that will, of course, include the true religion. They've, they've, lost, they've lost the memory of Aslan. He's sort of some, some pagan myth. He's like Bacchus, right? He's not anybody real. He's sort of some legend that the superstitious people of the past. So in that sense, it's certainly a critique of modernity uh, and, and the, ag the agnosticism that's been the consequence of modernity, particularly the ideas of the Enlightenment and the skepticism that goes with it. So in that sense, yes, but it's a very broad understanding of the church in that case. In other words, it's Christendom in, 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 as being something which is that we've forgotten and need to rediscover. In that sense, yes. But if you're talking about something that's to do with, you know, within the church, uh, then I, you know, there, there's, 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 very, there's very little overt ecclesiological symbolism in the story. So I think that could be overstated. Yeah, I think it came from a Protestant, so I so that might have been. It makes sense, sort of, if if it's coming from a Protestant perspective, the idea that they're sort of uh, rediscovering uh, that, that, and that the church isn't specifically that ecclesial, like they because right. they don't necessarily have that view. I mean, some. Yeah, I think do. it would be very Protestant, basically. That you know, that the the whole idea of of of, of Aslan. Uh, you know, died with uh, um, with the rise of Constantine, and then you had this early 
old Narnian church uh, that's that was the old the old pure church then becomes decadent and decayed and then you know a thousand years later there's this renewal which could be seen as the Reformation uh, I, I don't see that's what's happening in the story at all I don't think that's what uh, what what uh, um, uh lewis is is talking about but i can see why someone could could feed that into it okay awesome yeah thank thanks for clearing that up uh it had been one of it, it had been something on my mind for a couple years uh and it's good to have uh, more clarity on that uh so so uh we talked a little bit about your uh, website is the perfect place to find your work uh is there anything else coming up that uh that's going on with you. Uh, I know you're teaching a summer class uh, uh, at, um, I can't remember what school it is. Uh, yeah, there's always lots going on. I can't remember either. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, next week, I begin, I'm beginning a five-week uh, course with Memorial College Online on Shakespeare. Um, I'm leading a Camino uh, in the company of Tolkien uh, in, in Spain in September. So I'll be giving talks on Tolkien as we walk the Camino to Santiago de Compostela. So that's exciting. Um, and I've got a new book coming out sometime later in the summer, early autumn. Uh, it's called The Good, the Bad and the Beautiful, A History of Christendom in Three Dimensions, which has uh, one chapter for every century since the time of Christ. So I'm excited oh, wow. by that. Uh, and yes, I would encourage your viewers to check out my website. If they want to know what I'm up to on a weekly basis, that's where to go. And that's jpearce.co, J-P-E-A-R-C-E dot C-O. Awesome. That uh, that book, so it's, I'm very excited about that. I have your book on Eng English history as well that, that I need to read as well by Ignatius Press. I'll have a link to that in the description if anybody wants to get that. Um, but, you know, your work has just been so helpful, and I really appreciate you coming on to the show and, and talking to me about all, all the Narnia books. Uh, it's really a pleasure. Well, it's my pleasure, Connor. As I said, that I enjoy I enjoy interviews in direct proportion to how good the interviewer is. So I always have a good time with you. You're, you're knowledgeable. You ask the right sort of questions, and hopefully that's going to be something which is informative and entertaining for your for your viewers. Thank you. I appreciate it. You're you're very kind and generous, and and uh, it, it's you know it speaks to you know how good of a writer you are, your work, as well as just your. Um, your virtue as well. So thank you for that. Um, thank you. And uh, yeah, um, everyone, please like, share, comment, and subscribe. And God bless. Bye.